Well, good morning, Genesis House. Let's stand and read John. Uh, John. I'm all pre-programmed here. Uh, Joshua. Joshua chapter 1. We're going to read for verses 1 to 9. So Joshua chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 9. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place in which the sole of your foot treads I have given to you, just as I spoke unto Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea towards the setting of the sun, will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I have been with you, Mo- with you, Moses. Sorry, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to the fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do all that is in the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it from the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but it shall, you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Lord, we're looking forward to our passage today, and uh, it must have been such an incredible experience for Joshua to have you speak to him one-on-one. Lord, none of us, I think, in here have ever heard your audible voice before, but here you're speaking to Joshua, either in a vision or or man-to-man, but it's just incredible, Lord, the the, the courage he would have got from this uh, passage uh, the day that you spoke to him. And we just are thankful that... uh, it's in here and that we can learn from it as we make uh, our own changes in our church and transition ourselves. So we look forward to our time together. May your spirit guide us into truth. In Christ's name, amen. amen. While this may not be true of everyone in here, uh, change is often one of those things that, as people, we fear the most. It's something that we resist with every fiber of our being. And for those of us who don't like change, it often scares us because we don't like the uncertainty about what the future is going to hold for us. We get anxious over what we don't know is coming. And for those of you who are kind of a steady eddy types, uh, you know what I'm talking about, because you, you actually get a sense of peace and security and the predictability of what's familiar to you. Uh, for others, change is often something that's resisted because change means the potential for a lot of upcoming hard work. And a lot of us, by nature, can often be lazy. I know what that feels like at times. And so the thought of change means a whole new list of potential problems and issues we're going to have to work through. And uh, the issues we used to face in the past have already worked through them, so it's become easy now to manage. But change means that there's going to be new issues that will arise, and we have to work hard at solving them. Whatever the reasons are for our resistance to change, though, the reality of life is it's inevitable. One thing I can promise you is that change is inevitable, 
And that's especially true if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. All you have to do is read the Bible, and you will know that is a true statement. So this is where we find ourselves today at Genesis House. We are in a time of transition, and a place where it's a time for us to make a change. And uh, the board this morning, as you know, shared in part what it's going to look like for us in the future. But I feel that as a church, the greater part of our success going forward will be in how we manage the transition. And since it is God who has brought us this far up to this point, we need to turn to Him once again in terms of how to go through the next uh, couple months. And this is where we can turn to Joshua as we learn from uh, Israel's transitions. Now in the opening of this book, we find the nation of Israel in a state of severe transition, as everything that had been familiar to them was about to change. The first thing that's going to change for Israel that we encounter is a change in leadership. A change in leadership. Look at verse 1. It says, Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, saying, Moses, my servant, is now dead. With Moses now passed away, God had to give Israel a new leader to take his place. And this man is, of course, described here as Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, nothing's really really uh, told to us about Joshua here, but there is one key observation you don't want to miss. Notice he's described here as being a servant of Moses. He's been defined as a servant of Moses. So we can turn to other parts of Scripture to know what this would have looked like for Moses, or sorry, for Joshua as a servant of Moses. In Numbers 11, we're told that Joshua served alongside Moses since he was a youth. Now, by this time, according to the commentaries, Joshua's about 90 years old when he takes leadership of uh, Israel. 90. So, remember, these guys lived a lot longer than we did. (laughs) So he's 90 years old. He takes over leadership, but he's been serving with him since his youth. So he's had decades of experience being mentored by Moses. In Exodus 17, we learn that he he personally fought in battle against the Amalekites and was told by Moses to organize the army to fight them. So he had a lot of warfare experience. And he, they led, uh, Israel was led to defeating the Amalekites in the Sinai Peninsula. In Exodus 24, uh, Joshua was the only person in Israel to accompany Moses to Mount Sinai. He was allowed to go to the base of him before he ascended to receive the Ten Commandments and the Law. Nobody else in Israel was allowed to go that far with Moses. In Exodus 33, Joshua stood watch at the temporary tent of the meeting that Moses set up before the tabernacle was built. So again, he was, as, as Moses would speak to God face to face, Joshua would be standing outside this, this uh, makeshift tent and uh, stood watch. And Numbers 27, we see Joshua being publicly commissioned by Moses in front of all Israel as their new leader. So Moses laid his hands upon him and said, this is the guy for you. And probably most importantly, in Numbers 27, this is a description of Joshua. He was, he, we know he was a righteous man before God, and it says this, he was a man in whom was the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God was a, anointed him as a person. Now it's hard to know Israel's emotions around this change in leadership. We don't know if they were excited for it, or, or if they were, they were um, like worried about it. But I wonder, no matter what was going on, in their emotions, it probably was going to be a, a bit worrisome and a little bit anxious for this switch 
for this switch. I mean, Moses had an unbelievable resume. You want to talk about filling someone's shoes? This would be a tough guy to fill. I mean, God was, chose him in the burning bush to go take leadership of over two million people. He was God's instrument in delivering the ten plagues to Pharaoh. He was the one who led them out of Egypt. He crushed Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. He was the one who got to go up to the Mount Sinai and receive the Ten Commandments and spend 40 days with God in his presence. He was the one that God, can, God he actually had enough uh, relationship with God that he could convince him to change his mind about killing the Israelites after the Golden Calf incident. I mean, that's an incredible relationship he had with the Lord. He was the one who judged all their cases when they had, they had to work through issues before Jethro said, you're going to burn out Moses, you can't do this alone. He was the only one in Israel that God would speak face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So although Israel did not embrace him always, they ultimately respected and loved him. And when he died, it says in Deuteronomy 34, verse 8, Israel wept for him for 30 days. The whole nation wept for him for 30 days. Our funerals are 24 hours long. Not even. They're like an hour long. There's a few tears of aftermath. But people go back into the foyer and eat the food right after and have a few laughs. Israel was weeping for 30 days over Moses' death. So you can imagine this transition in leadership was a big deal to the Israelites and to Joshua. You can imagine what his emotions were like knowing whose shoes he was going to fill. But Israel faced more than just a transition in leadership. They also were going to face a change in scenery and lifestyle. Uh, it was a, after 40 years of wandering the wilderness, it was time to enter into the promised land. And let's pick this up in verse 2. He says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I'm giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place in which the sole of your foot treads I have given to you, just as I spoke to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea, towards the setting of the sun, will be your territory. You know, I was thinking practically through what it would be like for changes for these guys, and uh, I came up with a few categories, and uh, just, just for fun, but think about this in terms of transition. See, they're going to enter a new land, which meant a change in diet. A change in diet. Do you remember how they were fed for 40 years? Supernaturally, through God's provisions of manna and quail. So every day you'd wake up and have manna and quail, manna and quail. You're always provided for. Water in the desert was provided by God. Remember Moses, he uh, struck the rock and water came out to, to, for them to drink and so on and so forth. So they were supernaturally provided for. Now they're going into Canaan. What are they going to do? God stops in provisionary care. They're going to have to learn to work. They're going to have to learn to work, and they're going to have to learn to provide for themselves. Even though it was a great land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So this secondary change, not only diet, but this work area, meant that they were going to have to start produ uh, producing for themselves. And they're going to have to work longer hours and start to, to figure this whole thing out. And most of them are going to be agricultural farmers and whatnot. There's going to be a change in housing. You lived as a gypsy, basically, as an Israelite for 40 years. You, you built, you made your tent, you travel, you'd make your tent, you travel, you make your tent, you travel for 40 days. That's, that's why the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, was, was commemora commemorating the 40 years in the wilderness. They would, they would build little huts and celebrate that festival in Jerusalem. So you go from, from in, like, uh, basically moving, traveling homes to now permanent homes. The Canaanites, when they were wiped out, would leave their homes. 
and uh, you would now as an Israelite take over that real estate. You had no mortgage as an as a, uh, Israelite. That was God's provision to you. Could you imagine that for yourselves today? <laughs> Another major change would be God's presence. Uh, you were led by God through the cloud, a cloud of pillar of fire, and uh, sorry, a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud throughout the day and night. You were led by Him for 40 years. You know exactly where to go because He would direct you. And the tabernacle was built, and God's presence would be over the Ark of the Covenant. Well, now the ta- tabernacle is fixed in Shiloh. And Israel, as a nation, you've been spread over the land of Canaan. There's only one place for the tabernacle. But there's no more God's presence in terms of His leading in this way. So you can see the transitions are quite substantial. And these are just a few of many. So in the big picture, these these changes were to be awesome for Israel and for their greater good. But it also wasn't going to come easy. It was going to require them to exercise faith and face one of their greatest fears. See, one of their greatest fears was the Canaanite people. The Canaanite people. You see, the land that God had promised them was not vacant. It was occupied by a people group greatly feared by Israel and for good reason. Deuteronomy 1.28 describes the people of the land in this way. They were people of immense size and strength. And their cities were walled up to heaven. Joshua 17.18 describes them that their army had chariots of iron. And apparently iron wasn't a, a very common to nations around them at those days. So they were very unique in their, the strength of their army and the weapons they possessed. They were known for their brutality. They were wicked, violent people. Atrocious, atrocious uh, treatment of uh, victims in war. So in order for Israel to make this transition then, they're going to have to face these people and fight them in battle. But God knew the complexity of their situation and didn't want to leave them without hope. So he desired them to transition successfully and he provided them with what, what I would suggest is five instructions for smooth transition. It's five lessons that we're going to adopt in our church as we go forward as well. So what's the first, what's the first uh, lesson for us? Number one, God told Joshua to remember his past faithfulness to Israel. He told them to remember God's past faithfulness in Israel. Look at verse 3. Every place in which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. Look at verse 5. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I have been with you, with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you, nor forsake you. See, it was interesting for Joshua to go ahead with courage in the future, it was going to have to make him require and inquire and reflect on what God had done in the past. He was to look at what Moses had had done in Israel as he served alongside him and God's faithfulness to him and use that as a framework to move forward. And it must have been a powerful moment for Joshua to hear that he was going to be with him the same way he had been with Moses. As he looked back and he remembered all that he had done for him as I'm sure memory after memory kept flooding in of what God had done for Moses in in seemingly impossible times. And he'd witnessed all these things as his right-hand man. And God wanted Joshua to look backwards in order to move forwards. He wanted to look backwards in order to move forwards. And that's the key for us too, church. We need to look backwards to move forwards. 
and remember that all that God has done for us. Now, I just want to share a story a little bit because you may not all know this. Um, some of you will know all the details and some of you will know only partial details. But this church plan started off as an idea. It was God changing me in my life and making my priorities and my visions for what I wanted in the future different. He had to personally shape me first and he gave me this idea of church planning. But I had no way of going forward. And then through supernatural uh, uh, occurrences, through God's provision, Dan came into my life and provided me with the necessary training to move forward. And the denomination of the Free Methodist Church was willing to work with me despite having no education in formal seminary. And then God, unbeknownst to me, was stirring other families' hearts already, who were already part of other churches, to take a step of faith and join us. And uh, I don't know if Laurel remembers this, but uh, we'd get, you know, if we get together every, I don't know, three, six months of the families and hang out and stuff, she'd always ask me this question, so Andrew, when are you church planning? When are you church planning? And I'd always say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And then one day she said, when are you church planning? I said, I have an answer for you. And I remember that day because she was pretty excited about the fact that we were going to finally do this thing. And then a bunch of families also joined us during that time. I remember the Molyneux were initially in the family and the Barcelos and the Finleys. So they were right from the beginning were, were sort of uh, jumped in. But then we needed a place to meet. So God provided us with a home to the Jensen family and they opened up their home to us for a couple of years. And it was amazing as we, as we built a strong uh, family and financial uh, stability through that time. And then when we moved uh, to another location, we kind of struggled for a little while, and then the Rempelers joined our church. And needless to say, I don't have to explain to you the fruit that's come out of that after being here for a year and a half. We've had a great financial start to our church. Um, you may not know this, but church plants, the majority of church plants that start fail. I've been, as a, I didn't know that as a church planter. I'm glad I didn't know that when I started. But after I got into it, the people from the denomination were saying, did you know the success rate is like virtually nothing in church plants? I'm like, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> Good thing you didn't tell me. But here we are thriving as a church plant. And we're financially strong because you saw the math there, a thousand bucks a month. If we'd been doing that for four years, we'd have spent $48,000 in rent already. We've saved $48,000 rent by the Jensen's and Rempel's generosity. We've also done things, gone through tough times relationally and, and walked through with success in them. You know, as a family, just like within your family, there's always, the, there's always little things that make get tough within families, right? There's always relational issues. It's the same in a church, right? But you know what? We've been able to work, work through any issue that's come forward and we're stronger for it. We've dealt with all the sin that's come into our church. Those who have been rebuked and have not wanted to turn to God's way have left. Our church would have a, I know for a fact, because I know the families, we'd have at least 12 more people in here every week if I hadn't had to deal with sin in their lives. Right? But God wants a pure church. God has raised up a tremendous amount of families to serve. We have a strong group of volunteers in here that faithfully serve us, and I'm going to deal with that uh, at the end of the service. And giving thanks to you. God brought about the sale of the gym, allowing me to go full time. And uh, he's even provided the RPAC Center for us at the time that Rempel sold their house. You, did you know that that RPAC Center has been booked for years by another church? And right, and, I, and right when Rempel sell, the RPAC comes available. Now what's sad is that church was 
unfortunately, I think, I think if I get the information right, it's collapsed, but it's to our benefit because we come in. You know what's really cool? The RPEC Center was built in 1906 for 5100 bucks as a Methodist church. <laughs> Didn't know that. Methodist church. So 100 years later, we're returning it back to its roots. We are to look backwards as we move forward. And remember all that God's faithfulness to us so far. If he's led us for four years, he's not going to leave us now. There's no way. Second thing, Joshua was to remember God's purpose for them in the transition. He was, they were to remember God's purpose. See, look at verse 2. He says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and cross this Jordan, you and all his people, to the land which I'm giving to you. And then he describes the land in verse 4. See, the purpose was this. They weren't to stand in the banks of the Jordan and have a holiday. They weren't to stand in the banks of the Jordan and have a fishing trip and get a good suntan. They had come that far to go into the land. God said, As a, there's a purpose for you being here. Go get it. That was what the whole purpose of this rescue out of Egypt was. It was the purpose for 40 years in the wilderness to prepare them for this land. And it could have been easy for Israel to lose sight of what God's purpose was for them because if, if they only focused on their fears and worries about the change that was going to come in, they'd have been lost in that and not look, remembered what God had in store for them. What God in essence was saying to Joshua is a phrase that we use, like, keep your eye on the ball, buddy, right? Keep your eye on the ball. Don't forget your purpose. And for us too, church, as a time of transition and change, we need to remember our purpose of Genesis House right now. And I suggest there's a twofold purpose. One, we have a purpose within the church, and we have a purpose with, from without the church. So there's one inside the church and one outside. What's your purpose within? Well, in Ephesians 4, uh, it talks about uh, there, the purpose for leadership. And it says in Ephesians 4 that we're to, the leadership is to build up the body of Christ. And, there's, and we have to build it up so that there's unity in our understanding of who Jesus Christ is, in terms of how salvation looks, and unity about what it looks like to live out the Christian life. And the whole purpose of this, though, is, is, is a goal for maturity. He wants us to move from kindergarten to a university-level student in Christian faith and Christian life. We're not to stay as a kindergarten kid in terms of our, of our, our lives as a maturity. And he says, the model for the maturity that I want you to reach is Jesus Christ himself. <laughs> you think about your life now and you put Jesus beside you you're, our goal as a Genesis house is to make you like him in every category of your life so we're not done I mean we'll all like uh, my, my job and your, and your and our leadership's job and, and your own personal walk with Christ like you, we all have a lot of work to do if the model is Christ but we're pushing towards that that's the goal within the church it's unity in our understanding of him maturity that looks like him and the result of all this is that we learn to love like him. We learn to love like him. So that's the goal within the church. Discipleship is a huge focus and we have to change in our characters. But our purpose without, from without the church is the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go into all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that Jesus taught. So our purpose as Genesis House is to go out into the community of Okotoks and surrounding Calgary and be salt and light to this community. You can see why now it's important for us to change first to be more like Jesus, because the more you're like him, the more you'll want to share your faith and the more testimony you'll have to the people. So again, I think right now, as we make a time of transition, 
instead of worrying about the transition or being insecure about the transition or maybe fearful or whatever your, our emotions are, get our eyes back on the ball. Get our eyes back on the ball. Our, our purpose is to become like Jesus Christ in, within our churches and without the church to have a witnessing evangelistic outreach. Those are the two purposes. And as we move forward, know that this transition to the RPAC Center is what's required for us to fulfill those purposes. The third thing that Joshua was reminded in their time of transition was that courage was going to be needed. He actually makes it such a big deal, he repeats it three times. Look at verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Look at verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous. (laughs) And look at verse 9. Uh, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. All right? Why is he telling them three times in this passage to be strong and courageous in this transition? Well, this gets us back to the whole issue of the Canaanites and the people that they were going to face. I told you that the Canaanites were of immense size and strength and were known warriors, right? Look at the report that was given of these people years earlier when they first came and spied out the land. This is, this is uh, Joshua and Caleb sent spies, and Joshua and Caleb went with them. And this is the report. from the. It says, um, they started grumbling, and then it says this. Uh, Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with them said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land which they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim, the descendants of Anna, come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. (coughs) Uh, You may think that this is a literal... um, metaphorical phrase, like we seem like grasshoppers, I act, he act, they actually meant it. This is a literal description. And to help you understand who they, were, who they were dealing with as a general rule, we get a description of one of the kings they first defeated in battle with Joshua. The guy's name is Og of Bashan. He was one of the kings. And he was greatly known amongst the Canaanites as being one of the most powerful people. Look at the description of, of his coffin to give you an, an idea of the size of this man. It says in Deuteronomy 3.11, For only Og king of Bashan was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was of iron. It is in Rabbah of the sons of Amon. Its length was nine cubits, and its width four cubits by ordinary cubit standards. A cubit's about 18 inches. His bed was 13.5 feet long and six feet wide. Okay? Now, I don't know how you guys are going to deal with these pictures. <laughs> But uh, I love this stuff, and I'm totally prepared to answer any of the questions you want to ask me if you want after the dialogue. But I want to show you this. Um, They've discovered Nephilim bones around the world. And I want to show you some of these pictures, okay? To give you an idea of what's, what's been found. You see the man? Oh. <laughs> That's a, that's a skull. That's, a, that's the guy picking up the excavation. Okay? Uh, well, well, this is uh, crazy. Are ready for the next one? 
Now, my uncle Douglas loves this stuff, and I was in Scotland, and he's like, Andrew, if this is all true, why aren't they, why isn't there any discoveries like the dinosaurs of all these things? And I said, there has been. He's like, no, there hasn't. I'm like, yes, there has. And he was floored when I showed him this stuff. Floored. Okay. I'll, I'll tell you why in the discussion why I think this is, is not made public. I'll tell you why in the discussion why I think this is not made public. There's one, one more. Okay. When the Bible records that Aga Bashan was 13 by 5 feet by six feet in terms of an iron bed, and the Cain and the Israelites are saying we are like grasshoppers in their sight. Don't think that's metaphorical language. That is an absolute truth. You see why God had to supernaturally win the battles for them. You see why they walked around Jericho seven times and had to shout to defeat them all, right? And you you see why he has to tell them three times to be not to be discouraged and to actually I love verse nine. Do not tremble or be dismayed. And he tells them, you have to have courage, 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 courage. There was going to be a tremendous fear. Gives you appreciation for David going against Goliath. Goliath was a Nephilim descendant. Okay? So he was 10 feet tall. That's not a lie. That's why nobody in Israel would fight Goliath. Because they were terrified of him. And David in his face says, I'll take him out. Right? It gives you appreciation for David now. <laughs> 10 feet high is a basketball hoop. Just so you know. Anyway. I love this stuff. I could go on for hours on this. I might even do a sermon, a sermon just on this Nephilim itself one day because I'm, I'm totally wired for this um, in my own personal faith stuff. But uh, anyway, so here's the thing, church. None of us are going to have to face Nephilim in this transition, okay? But often we make our insecurities and fears about transition often like they are Nephilim, <laughs> especially for the steady Yeti. Uh, safe and secure kind of people, right? Listen, we have to just not worry about this stuff. God is telling us straight up, you know what? We have to be strong and courageous in our transitions and nothing we're going to face is going to be as fearful as this. So if the Israelites uh, had to do it, I'm sure we'll be fine as well. But just get our eyes back on the ball and uh, remember, it will take courage for us to uh, move forward. (laughs) The fourth thing that I would like to say is um, comes down to the transition for Israel and Joshua was he was told to make God's word their number priority during the transition. The word of God was to be their number one priority during the transition. Look at verse 7 and 8. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. You know, it's interesting, again, as Joshua stood at the banks of the Jordan, that as he prepared to take the land, God didn't share with him the key to their success was military tactics. He didn't stick around going, you know, attack from this side, do this, do that. Nothing about the military tactics. He said, if you want to guarantee success in both the possession of the land and life in the land afterwards, you're only going to be successful as a nation if you obey my word and live and are allegiant to my word. I mean, I think that's a really incredible statement considering where our nations are today in the world. 
even, I think of Canada especially, a nation founded on Christianity, the key for us as a nation, if we want to be a successful nation, we have to return to the allegiance of God's word. And we're not. And we're reaping the, benefit, or the, reaping the consequences of it today. That's another, another sermon. They see the Israelites were not to take their cues from the Canaanites. They weren't to take their cues from the surrounding nations. They weren't free to pick and choose parts of God's word as they felt like it. They were, be, they were to be totally committed to God's voice and his alone. God was not interested in divided loyalty. They were to have a single razor sharp focus. That's why in verse 7 he says this, Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. Like don't even like move one iota off the center line. And this allegiance to God's word was to be demonstrated in two ways. First, in their devotional life. Look at 8. Look at starting at verse uh, 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. For them to meditate it on day and night meant they A, had to be reading it, two, thinking about it, and then speaking about it. They were to then speak it. They were to read, think, and speak the word of God. That was part of their devotional life. Their word of God was to be constantly on their minds and in their mouths. And it was to saturate every part of their life. Secondly, though, they were not only to read, think, and speak about it. They were to do it. Look at, look at verse 8 again. He says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. It wasn't enough just to think about it and read it and speak it. You had to live it out. Israel was to live it out on a day-to-day basis, a week-to-week basis, a month-to-month basis, year-to-year, and so on. And this is, this is a bit unbelievable in a culture that was completely void of obeying God and didn't even care about who God was. So this was going to, this to the way they, their devotional life was and what they thought and spoke about and how they lived their lives out would be vastly different than the Canaanite culture. It'd be like night and day, wouldn't even be close to even similar in culture, in the culture of the way they lived out their lives. Now, unfortunately, we know the rest of the story. Israel as a whole failed to carry out what God asked of them and became syncretistic. They adopted Canaanite practices. And generation after generation of Israelites failed, with the exception of a king here or there, to ever fully live out God's instruction to Joshua. Now, it's important for us to remember this, church. Here's why. If we're going to be successful in our transition from the, for the rest of the years that we're in, the, in Okotoks, we need to demonstrate a complete allegiance to the Word of God. A complete allegiance to the Word of God. You know, that's easy to say but hard to do. Here's why. The, as a general statement, this is a true fact. I, I learned this at a conference from our leadership at the denomination. The church is in deep, the evangelical church in Canada is in decline. Decline. From, from 1976 to 2014, I got the stats. There's less baptisms, less memberships, less church attendance, less everything in the church today. We're in a decline. It includes our, includes our denomination. It's not like we're doing well and everyone else is doing poorly. We're doing poorly as well. We have less churches today in 2017 than we did in 1976. Okay? So we're in decline as well. But here's why I believe we are. Just like these guys were not to waver from the left or the right of the Word of God, churches that have been known for being strong Bible teachers are starting to pick and choose parts of the scriptures they want to read and teach, and they're letting the culture influence them, and we're falling by the wayside. We're falling by the wayside.
I'm missing a page. Sorry. That's very strange. Sorry to lose that train of thought, but we're falling by the wayside because of our, I think, because we're departing from the word of truth. And as a leader, I can understand that temptation. But may it never be said of me or this church. If we are going to fulfill God's purposes for us, we're going to require that all of us, from the leadership to each, every individual one of you, live out these things. We need to be saturated in the word of God. You need to read it, think it, speak it, and live it out in your lives. Our personal habits, both in our private and public life, will affect how successful we are. Now, perhaps, I don't know if you've done this or not, but maybe you think, well, my personal life in this church doesn't really impact the whole. Like, what I do on my own doesn't make really that much of a difference, because that's more about what Andrew does, and, and maybe the board, and, you know, people like that. Listen, Scripture tells us in this, that if one suffers, all suffer. A little bit of yeast can make a whole, a whole bunch of bread rise, right? So if one of us is suffering in here, either in a good way or a bad way, like when I say good way, I mean like not, not from sin, but just suffering in terms of other things, we all feel it. But if one of us is, is not living out to our full potential in, in Jesus Christ, and we're kind of, we can actually impact the whole church. So this is the key to our success is that both on an individual basis and from a leadership basis that we are fully committed to the Word of God. And God can use you independently of me to grow this church and to grow Genesis House. Think about this. If you're reading, thinking, and speaking the word and looking more like him in your life, he can use you to change someone's life in this community. Your neighbor, your family members, and so on. You can personally lead them to salvation. Or you could bring them to this church to receive discipleship. And as people see how you're interacting within Genesis House as a community and the, like, the love that we will hopefully continue to share and grow in, they'll see a committed group of believers to Jesus Christ. And they'll want to be part of our community. And being downtown, we'll have a more public face. You never know who's going to walk in the door. But again, we, we as a, we, we, our commitment from this Genesis House cannot depart from the Word of God. And it comes with a tremendous promise. Listen to the promise to the Israelites if they were to do this in verse 7. He says, uh, he says, if you do this, you will have success wherever you go. And then in verse 8, he says, be careful to do according to all that is written, for then you will make your way prosperous. For us to be prosperous and successful as a church, we have to be committed to the priority of making God's word allegiance in our life. In both the way we think, speak, and live it out. I don't care what anybody else is doing around us. This is our purpose and what we're going to do here. And we're to hold each other accountable, including myself, if we're going straight. Finally, what was the next piece of transitional advice God had for Joshua? He said this. He was, he was to remember that no matter what, God's presence was going to be with them. They were never going to be alone. God was going to be with them every step of the way. Look in verse 5. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I have been with you, Moses, I will be with you. A promise of his presence. In verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Tremendous words of assurance and comfort for Joshua. And tremendous words of assurance and comfort for us. 
We're not alone in this. We've been traveling with the Lord for four years in this little journey. They did 40, we've done four. He's not going to leave us and abandon us as long as we continue to be faithful to Him. So let's uh, just quickly run through these as our lessons. Um, they're not even lessons. They're, well, they are lessons, but I'm not going to expand on them. These are the five points, once again. For us to be transitionally successful in this church, one, we are to remember God's faithfulness to us in the past. Okay? For to remember God's faithfulness to us in the past. Two, we're to remember God's purposes for us within the church and without the church. Three, we're to remind us that it was going to take it's going to take courage for us to step forward in various ways. Fourth, that we're God's word has to be our number one priority. And fifth, we're to remember that God's presence will be with us this entire time.